I do want to say it is a great honor to be able to share the Word of God this morning. Um, the circumstances upon which I am preaching this morning are not the ones that I desire. I would much prefer that Pastor Pete were just getting a break and not dealing with what he's going through, but in God's sovereignty, this is uh, how I'm preaching this morning. Before we get into the text this morning, I thought it would be helpful for us to see perhaps a little bit of a lighthearted or humorous illustration of something that I want you to think about, and that is perspective. Oh, actually, we can't move until you turn off your cell phone. Turn, why would I turn off my it's cell phone? It's just kind of, it affects the navigation. It might, it could crash the car. So, actually, you got to put on your seatbelt. Oh, okay. Yeah, sorry. Uh, do you mind just throwing that under your seat? Is that seatbelt on? Let me just double no, check. It's, it's for sure. Let me just yep, make sure that on. thing's on. Yeah, okay, good. Actually, that bag, could you just move that bag? Just move it under the seat. Yeah. Just... Hey, we've reached uh, cruising speed. You can take that seatbelt off okay. now. Feels yep. illegal. Nah, it's once we get up to a certain speed, you can take it off. For some reason, I'm craving a ginger ale. I don't know. There you go. Oh, right wow. here. Thank you. Ooh, hey, actually, there's some potholes coming up. Do you mind throwing that seatbelt back on? Yeah. Peanuts? Pretzels? Out of pretzels, please. There you go. Thank you. Oh. What is, what is that? Is that a baby crying? Hey, yeah, we have one of those on every trip. Actually, you can take your seatbelt off now. Okay. You wanna, yeah, you can take your seatbelt off. Yeah, great. So, would you like to sign up for a credit card? What? You guys serving any real food? Mm, emerald customers only, sir. You're in an economy car. Oh, hey, no cigarettes. Hey, uh, we're about to arrive. You want to just put that seat up a little bit? It's just... Sir, I'm going to have to ask you to put that cell phone away, please. Actually, a little more. If you could just put it up a little more. You mind just closing that glove box? Just... Sir, again, we're about to arrive. You mind just putting that on yeah. car mode? Mm -hmm. I still feel like it's not level with the other ones. Just put it... Attention, everyone in this car. No cell phone. Can you just... It's all the way. Just... Is that... There you go. Is that comfortable? Whoa, sir, not until we've come to a complete stop. Okay. What are we doing up there? My neck hurts. Open the door. Yeah, so when you think about what it would be like if driving your car uh, was like flying in a plane, it does seem pretty ridiculous, doesn't it? Um, it really puts into a unique perspective how different it is to ride in a car than it is from flying in a plane, and how odd it would seem to others if you expected them to act like they were flying in a plane every time they rode with you in a car. That would be pretty strange. Well, in the book of Philippians, Paul has a perspective on life that to most people who have lived on this earth seems entirely foreign and altogether very strange. Let me tell you a little bit about that. While writing his letter to the Philippians, and you can go ahead and open to Philippians now, Philippians chapter 1, we're going to be in verse 18 in just a moment here, but as Paul writes this letter to the Philippians, Paul finds himself quite literally in a trial. Now we often say that we're in a trial, but I mean he was quite literally preparing for the trial of his life, a court trial. Paul is under house arrest awaiting a trial before Caesar. And if you want to, you can read a little bit about his situation at the very end of the book of Acts. He seems quite hopeful that his trial is going to go well, and he's going to be 
receiving a favorable verdict, and he will go free. However, he is also prepared for the opposite to happen. He is ready to be condemned and also to die. And in the midst of these dire circumstances, you would expect that Paul might be especially gloomy or discouraged, maybe wistful about what might have been or what should be. And yet, he has an entirely different viewpoint. That's not at all how we find Paul. And his viewpoint is perhaps as strange as considering that you're flying in a plane when you're riding in your car. It's that different from what you would expect from his circumstance. If you look at the section of text just before what we'll be looking at today, verse 12, Paul writes this. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. I believe that Paul correctly assumes that the Philippians are discouraged by Paul's situation. They may be intimidated and afraid to share the gospel due to this Roman show of force. I mean, think about it. After all, if the Romans are willing to arrest Paul, the Christian's leader, what's going to stop them from arresting any one of them for sharing their faith? But Paul wants to squash this mindset as soon as possible from the get-go. He informs them that since his arrest, the gospel has actually advanced in ways that never would have been possible if he had never been arrested. In fact, everyone, including the Roman unbelievers, have become aware that Paul has been imprisoned for Christ. And he is able to testify of Jesus to people he never could have if he were not under house arrest. Even more so, perhaps, Paul says that believers in Rome have been so emboldened by Paul's imprisonment that they are preaching the gospel in a way that they never did before he was arrested. And so Paul says these things, and they're quite surprising events. But perhaps even more astonishing is what Paul says over and over and over again in a letter where his life literally hangs in the balance. Look at what Paul says. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. In verse 18 of chapter 2, Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. I am all the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Rejoice in the Lord always. 
Again, I will say, rejoice. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. Now at length you have revived your concern for me. You see, nine times, nine times, Paul weaves in this idea of rejoicing as an explanation for what is, he is doing right now as well as what he expects the Philippians to be doing in his present circumstances. And this doesn't even include the times where Paul uses the same root word, joy, such as when he says, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. Paul says that he is rejoicing and every Philippian believer should be doing the exact same thing. Now let's be honest, every single one of us has gone through a difficult trial or is presently going through one or is about to go through a trial. The big question here that we should be asking is, how can I rejoice when I'm going through an unpleasant experience with an uncertain outcome? Let me say it again. This is a question that we should all be asking of ourselves. How can I rejoice when I'm going through an unpleasant experience with an uncertain outcome? And the answer, according to Paul, is this. The exact same way you find your joy when things are peaceful and there is no conflict. You find your joy in God. Paul has learned that when you find your joy in God, you won't be thrown off course when you get thrown in prison. When you derive your satisfaction in life from a God who is perfect and delights to fulfill his promises to you, you'll never be disappointed. And when you find your joy in someone who never lets you down, you'll never lose your joy. So what does it mean to find your joy in God. I suppose there are several ways that we could go about pursuing this question. And a simple definition might be, finding your joy in God means that living has no meaning apart from God. He is the object, the motive, the inspiration, and the goal of all that we do. But I find that one of the ways to define a word or a concept is actually not to just give you a simple definition, but to give you a working definition. In other words, what does it look like to find your joy in God? And I'm thankful that Paul presents us with a working definition in verses 18 to 24, our text this morning. So when you find your joy in God, you're going to notice three things, at least three things that we find in this text. So let's read our text, starting in the second part of verse 18, where there's a paragraph break, and let's see what he says. Paul writes, yes, and I will rejoice. Why will you rejoice, Paul? For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. 
As Paul has rejoiced through his past and present status that we read just a few minutes ago, he now noticeably changes to the future. He says, I will rejoice. Why are you so certain, Paul, that you can rejoice in the future? What if things get worse? What if the court verdict doesn't go in your favor, Paul? Well, he grounds his assurance in what he says in verse 19. He says, For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Now, what does Paul mean by deliverance? It would be easy to just read through this and assume that he means deliverance from a guilty verdict, right? He's facing a trial. And he says, I know that I will be delivered. Well, of course, he means he's going to be delivered from the trial, right? But if we pay attention to the context at all, it is clear that by no means is Paul certain that he's going to be delivered from physical harm in this trial. In fact, in the next verse, he says, whether by life or by death, And he doesn't just mean peacefully drifting off into death. He means being killed. So while he may believe that he will be declared innocent, he is not certain. And in verse 19, Paul is absolutely certain about this deliverance. So that can't be what he's talking about. So what is this deliverance? Well, it's important to realize that Paul here is directly quoting Job in the Old Testament. You know the story of Job, right? Job is a wealthy man with many possessions. Okay, he has a good family. He has a good life. And then it's all taken away from him. He loses all of it, even his very health. And while he was suffering, Job asserted in Job 13, 15, Though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. I will surely defend my ways to his face. Then Job expressed his hope, This will turn out for my deliverance. Do you think that Job meant he knew he was going to get all that stuff back? Do you think Job knew that he was going to get his health back? No. In fact, Paul recalls the scriptural account of Job's suffering while he was in chains, and by appropriating Job's story to his own life, Paul is able to echo the hope of Job, I know that what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. So again, you're asking, what is this deliverance? Well, I want to be clear that this word deliverance is the same word that is also translated salvation throughout the New Testament, soteria. It is sometimes used in the context of vindication, meaning being showed, being shown to be righteous in God's court. So when you stand before God at his judgment seat, you are vindicated and shown to be righteous. So thinking of it in this way, here, when Paul is asserting that his assurance is that he will be delivered, certainly, he will be saved, he will be vindicated, he's talking about vindication in God's heavenly court, 
whether or not he will receive that vindication here on earth. Do you see what Paul is saying here now? Paul can rejoice about the future, not because he knows what's going to happen now, but because he knows what will happen in the grand scheme, even if he doesn't know the outcome of the trial. And folks, in trials, we often pray for deliverance with a short-sighted perspective, don't we? We want God to deliver us from the trial unscathed, and we pray fervently towards that end. But here, after a closer look, you realize Paul isn't even focused on the present trial. His perspective is much deeper than that. He will be saved and vindicated before God which is all he cares about. This is all he needs to rejoice. We often focus on the immediate circumstances and think we need to be delivered. But we need to look at the big picture and rejoice in the sure promises of God. We need to find our joy in God, not deliverance from our comfort. And I want to note that there are two crucial elements in this verse that we kind of rushed by, but I want to go back to them now. So look back at the verse that we just read. Paul claims that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit, this will turn out for his deliverance. So first of all, notice that the trial drove Paul to prayer, not to despair. Finding joy in God means that you believe in the effective power of prayer to bring about God's will through your life. You believe that prayer does something. And notice it also means that you believe in the working of the Spirit. You believe that when you're going through a trial, God is working. He's using it. When something bad happens and you believe it's worthless it makes the bad so much worse. But when you believe there's a reason for the pain, then you can endure. Take, for instance, you go through an extensive surgery and a painful recovery to remove cancer because you believe that in the end, you will survive longer as a result. You go through months and months of watering and waiting for a garden to grow so that you can enjoy a harvest of fruits and vegetables. This is the application for my wife. She loves plants. We have a garden in our house all winter long. If you miss the plants, come to our house or take them with you. (laughs) I would love that. (laughs) I didn't say that, though. Um, You wake up earlier. You exercise when you're tired. And you eat healthy things that you don't like so that your body will be healthier because of it. These are all examples of things that we do that cause us pain in the present, but we can handle the pain because we know in the future something good will happen. And Paul knew that the prayers of believers were working together with the Spirit of God. This combination shows how closely human prayers and God's provision are related. Our prayers have no power in themselves without the work of the Spirit. And at the same time, we cannot presume upon God's Spirit to work in our lives without a concerted effort in prayer. 
And so if these two things are working together to achieve Paul's deliverance, it appears that Paul is saying that with God's help, he will be able to boldly and faithfully represent Christ before the court of Caesar, and whether or not they vindicate him, he knows that God will do so, and God will receive the glory through his faithful witness. And so this brings us to our very first point, and you have it in your notes, and that is this. When you find your joy in God, you are certain that the Holy Spirit is working through prayer to glorify God in your trials. This isn't true when you find your joy in other things. When you find your joy in your job, you're pleased when you're paid well and you're respected in your workplace. But what about when your ideas aren't well received or your coworkers receive promotions and your diligence is overlooked? What about when you get blamed for poor work that somebody else did? Or what about when you lose your job? If you find your joy in your job, your world caves in when your job does. When your job is your identity, what happens when you lose it? You lose your joy. Or what about when you find your joy in your schedule? What about you control freaks out there? You've got a list of things you're supposed to do today. This happens at 4.02 and 15 seconds. And at 4.02 and 20 seconds, we better be doing this. Well, when you find your joy in your schedule, things are great when things go according to plan. But what about when a child gets sick at school and you have to go pick him up? Or... Something happens that should take half an hour and takes half a day. And your whole life gets thrown off. If you find your joy in your schedule, you lose your joy when the slightest interruption throws it off. But when you find your joy in God, you know that God is at work when you lose your job. You recognize that losing your job is part of his plan to bring himself glory through your life. Instead of being solely focused on how to find the next job, you're in constant prayer asking God to work through your job loss to show you who he is and what he wants to do through you. When you find your joy in God, you acknowledge that the Spirit is working when your schedule is shot and your plans are ruined. You pray that you won't miss what he's doing through the trial. Are you certain that the Spirit is working through your prayer to glorify God in your trials? Do you find your joy in God? Well, let's continue on as we look at verse 20. Paul writes, As it is my eager expectation and hope, that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Now Paul says that he is eagerly expectant and he hopes. 
And this is a good time to remember that hope in the New Testament is not something at all that he's uncertain about. It is a confident expectation that something is guaranteed to happen. Just as he was certain in verse 19 that he would be delivered, now Paul is confident that he will not be at all ashamed. And just like in verse 19, it's important that we recognize that Paul once more is not just thinking in a short-sighted manner. It is possible, and maybe even likely, that he will stand in Caesar's court and be shamed by some who don't follow Christ. He may be mocked for his faith. In fact, I would, I would pose that he will be mocked for his faith. He has no guarantee that men will not shame him in his present circumstance. And yet he knows without a shadow of a doubt that as he stands on trial and defends the gospel, he will not be ashamed. Because Paul's shame is not related to his personal reputation or even the outcome of the trial. Instead, he would be ashamed if he did not accurately defend the gospel and proclaim Christ. To Paul, it is shameful to fail to bring glory to God through a trial. That's what true shame is to Paul. What a weird perspective, Paul. It's like you're flying in an airplane when you're driving your car. At the same time, when God's Spirit gives you full courage to defend the gospel in your trial, you won't be ashamed even if that trial leads to your death. This truth really is astounding to us because we're so accustomed to praying that God would remove bad things from our lives. We reason like this. Well, the things that I'm going through are bad. God wouldn't want something bad for his children. I'm one of God's children, so God doesn't want this for me. Therefore, I should pray that God removes this from me since this is obviously not what he wants for me. This mindset is so prevalent in Christians today, and folks, this mindset is prevalent in my own heart as I stand here. This is something I wrestle with every time that I pray. And yet it is so spiritually childish. The scriptures are full of exhortations and examples of God using bad things in the lives of his children to bring about their transformation and his own glory. Paul doesn't say that he is confident that he will not be ashamed because he will be declared innocent and he will live. He is confident that although he may be mocked by men and condemned to die, he knows that Jesus will be honored through him and that's all that matters. So this brings us to our second point. When you find your joy in God, you confidently expect that Jesus will be honored through you regardless of your personal reputation or the outcome of your trials. Now folks, this isn't true when you find your joy in other things. When you find your joy in your personal reputation, Things are wonderful when people look up to you and think you're a good person and praise you. 
But what about when people's opinions about you change and they no longer see you as a good person? What about when someone else comes along and people flock to that new person and cast you aside? When you care so much about what others think of you, you're sure to be disappointed when you lose favor with others. Or what about when you find your joy in a relationship? Maybe it's a friend or someone who's more than a friend. Maybe it's your spouse. Let me be clear about something. You ought to find joy in your spouse. And in other relationships. But when you find your ultimate joy and derive your satisfaction and meaning in life from any single person other than Jesus Christ, that person is certain to fail you. Everyone does. We're all human. But when you find your joy in God, you'll never be disappointed because God will never leave you or forsake you. God never breaks his promises. He never fails to deliver when he says he will do something. He never sins against you. And though it's nice to be liked by others, what God thinks of you is far more important than what your coworkers think of you. And although you should take joy in your spouse or a boyfriend or a girlfriend, you should never find your purpose in life in your relationship with them because they will fail you. But God will never fail you. Find your joy in God. So when you find your joy in God, number one, you are certain that the Holy Spirit is working through prayer to glorify God in your trials. Number two, you confidently expect that Jesus will be honored through you regardless of your personal reputation or the outcome of your trials. And as we look to our final four verses, we'll see our third and final point. So let's read verses 21 to 24. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Now, verse 21 is perhaps one of the most well-known verses in the entire Bible. Literally, in Greek, it says this, to live, Christ, and to die, gain. And there are several verbs that we could supply here that would be fitting. To live means Christ. Christ gives meaning to my life. To live depends on Christ. My entire life depends on him. And folks, that's exactly what we sang, the choir sang this morning. My soul finds rest in God alone. My, my life depends on Christ. To live honors Christ. The purpose of my life is to honor Christ. To live is Christ. Christ is my life. The foundation the center, the purpose, the direction, 
power and meaning of Paul's life is Christ. And yet, to die for Paul is gain. Paul viewed his death as gain not just because he would finally be with Christ, but he viewed it as the greatest opportunity in his life to testify to Christ and bring him glory through a martyr's death. Think about this. Paul has lived his life proclaiming the glories of the gospel. And now he looks at this and says, if I am to die now, this is my opportunity to stare death in the face and say, I welcome it. Because in my not betraying Christ and proclaiming him boldly, and you killing me for that, and I offer up my life willingly and say, Christ, this is for you? Paul says, there's no better way to go. Is there any better way I could end my life than to testify that Jesus is worth more than my life? There's a play on words here in the original Greek language that doesn't get carried over into English. To live is Christ, Christos. To die is gain, kurdos. Christos versus kurdos. You hear the, the word play going on there. Paul spends the rest of our passage debating which he's going to choose. It's not like he has the ability to choose what will actually happen. He's already made that clear. He knows that's in God's hands. But he does go through the process of weighing the two possibilities and comparing them. If he continues to live, his focus is on the fruit that will come from laboring for Christ. And yet if he dies, he will be with Christ. And again, there's another play on words in Greek. If he continues to live, he will see fruit, karpos. But if he dies, for him it will be gain, kurdos. Karpos versus kurdos. Fruit for Christ alive, gaining Christ dead. Which will he choose? Well, folks, this is Paul flying an airplane with your car again. To him, it's a no-brainer. He would definitely choose to be with Christ. But since he sees that remaining with them will be beneficial to their spiritual growth, he is willing to remain. And he assumes that God will choose this option for him. But I think the real takeaway for us is not dependent on which Paul chooses. And I do believe there is a big takeaway for us as believers. Death doesn't have to be on your doorstop or your doorstep for Paul's situation to apply to us. The important thing here is the way that Paul views his trial, his perspective, and not just the trial, but his very own life. And this is the big shocker that's as strange to the world as someone who tries to make your car ride seem just like a plane ride. And here's the third point. When you find your joy in God, you view bearing fruit for Christ as the supreme purpose of your life. And you welcome death as the ultimate opportunity to testify to Christ. Paul isn't frightened to face death. And he isn't grasping on to the life that he has left. He has a very simple and yet revolutionary concept of life and death. As long as he is alive, 
He intends to bring God as much glory as possible by bearing fruit for him. And when he dies, he will be face to face with the one for whom he lived his life. He'll be face to face with him for all eternity. And that's what it means to find your joy in God. Your purpose for life is Christ. And you seek to bring him glory in all that you do. And when you die, it's not a bad thing. It's a glorious thing. For you will live forever with the one in whom you find your joy. You say, I'm not, I'm not expecting to live or to die a, a martyr's death. What if I die peacefully? Does that mean I, I can't glorify God in my death? Absolutely not. Paul says, actually, that through your dying, not holding on to your life as dear to yourself, but giving it up and welcoming what comes next and saying that is far better than what happens here. I've been thankful to bear fruit for Christ on this earth since he chose to do it through me. I don't know why, but it brings him glory and so I've done it. But when you lie on your deathbed, as I've seen people who are on the brink of death, when they testify to Christ and say he was worth it, he was worth giving my life for, living my life for. And I'm not afraid to die because it just means the next step. I get to be with Christ. When you have that perspective about your death, you're doing the same thing Paul is here. For you to live is Christ and to die, gain. Christos, kurdos. And this isn't true when you find your joy in other things. When you find your joy in your physical health, you're fine as long as you're healthy. But what about when your body starts to break down and you can't do what you used to be able to do? What about when you find your joy in sports? Things are great as long as your team is winning. But what about when your team falls short in the big game? What about when you find your joy in hobbies? Things are fine until you can no longer do those hobbies because of health, finances, or a multitude of other factors that can disrupt our lives. And they do. What about when you find your joy in money? You will never make enough and you will never have enough to be satisfied. But when you find your joy in God, you won't even be concerned about whether you live or die. Your only concern will be, am I bringing glory to God through my life? Am I bringing glory to God through my death? You know, you may be here this morning, and you may be thinking, how do I, how do I find joy in God? I don't even know God. I mean, I've said his name a few times, but I don't know God. Let me encourage you. And Paul would say this today if he were here, and he, believe me, he says it today in the Word of God that, that today you can know God. 
God has revealed himself to you. In the scriptures that we read earlier, it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That Word is Jesus Christ, God's perfect Son. Jesus has existed forever and all eternity with God. And he created all things that you see today. He created this earth. He created the stars in the sky. He created everything. It didn't just explode out of nothing. God created it. And Jesus has existed forever. And yet there's a problem. Is he created man perfect. And yet man decided that he would prefer to have it differently than the way that God wanted him to have it. And he sinned against God. We sinned against God. And folks, I don't think it's that hard for us to convince ourselves that we are sinners. And our sin separates us from a holy and righteous God. There's no way we can have a personal relationship with God. He's perfect. He's holy. And we are not. We are not good people, folks. We are sinful people. And yet God is a loving God because he provided a way for us to have a relationship with him. He sent his perfect son, Jesus Christ, to earth as a man. We celebrate that at Christmas every time. And he didn't just come here to show us how to live. He didn't just come here to be a good person. Although he was good, he was perfect in every way as he always has been. Jesus has never sinned. But Jesus lived a perfect life and yet he was killed by sinful men. And yet that did not thwart God's plans because that was his plan all along. Because you see, folks, in order for us to have a relationship with God, somebody has to take the penalty for our sins. Somebody has to die for us in our place. And God says, Jesus will do that. My perfect son will die in your place. He will take your punishment. And there's only one thing you have to do. You just have to have faith in Jesus. You just have to put your trust in Jesus for your salvation. Have faith in him alone. Not in him and what you do that's good. There's nothing you can do that's good that will improve upon Jesus' perfect life. You try to improve upon perfect and you only mess it up. So the only way to have Jesus' perfect righteousness credited to your account is to have faith in him and him alone. In Christ alone our hope is found. And when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, God places Jesus' righteousness upon you and you can have the very same assurance that Paul has in this passage. He knows that in the last day he will stand before God and God will declare him to be righteous because of Jesus Christ. Because his righteousness hangs upon him. And he doesn't look at us and see all of our sinfulness, which he should. He doesn't see that. He sees Jesus' righteousness alone. And folks, this morning... If you don't have a relationship with God, you can. This morning you can place your faith in Jesus alone. And he will give you his righteousness. And then you can find your joy in God. 
And when you find your joy in God, your whole world may collapse around you. You may lose every material possession that you own, and maybe your own health. And you may even die for your faith. But when you find your joy in God, you can say with your dying breath, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Let's pray. Father, we're gathered together this morning because we believe that you have given to us your very word. We hold in our hands the very words of God. And we have read your word this morning and it declares to us that we can have certainty that we will be declared righteous in your heavenly court. And that certainty that we have in that righteousness changes everything for us today. We find our joy in you and suddenly the things of life just change in our perspective. It doesn't matter what people can do to us. They cannot strip us of our faith. They can't take away the righteousness that Jesus has clothed us in. We find our joy in you. Our closest companions may fail us, and they will, but God will be the strength of our lives. We don't have to worry. We know that you will never fail us. This morning, we testify to that. We testify that you are great and you are good. We trust both of these things. Father, I pray that this morning as we reflect upon what you said to us in your word, you would help us to respond appropriately. Help us as we often do when we find our joy in lesser things to return our, to finding our joy in you finding our satisfaction and purpose in life in you. And Father, for those who don't know you, I pray that your spirit would work in their hearts to show them their need for you, that only Jesus can satisfy. Only Jesus can give us a relationship with you. Father, I pray that you would be exalted and glorified in all that is done in our response to this text. In Jesus' name, amen.